Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 89. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, I would ask what you've been up to, but I know what you've been up to. You've been doing narrated roles. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say something really bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, this morning I did three videos narrating some Patreon member live footage that they, they got in the gym. They posted it in the Discord chat, and then we download the video, and we do a voiceover, giving feedback and chopping it up and adding cool arrows and things like that, and yeah, put it back into the chat for everyone to see. So it's a really great benefit for being a Patreon member, and it's it's kind of fun too. Once you get the hang of it, it goes by a little bit quicker, but it is definitely, I think, a valuable resource for our listeners. Yeah, you've been totally upstaging me here with a production value. I mean, I did a narrated role and I just recorded over audio. Then I saw one of the ones that you did and you've got like slow-mo and freezing the frame and drawing little arrows on there. And I feel like mine is child's play now. I got to step up my game. That's because... I spent about an hour doing it and you were in the Starbucks lineup while you did yours. <laughs> but no, I do I do have some experience now with the program. I've been using it for like a month. So I feel like I know my way around it. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to make the videos a little bit better in terms of production value. I'm not really splicing in Simpsons clips like Rory does, which makes his <laughs> videos pretty awesome. But uh, we'll get there one day. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Baby steps. We're new at this video thing. But yeah, it's actually something that I've really taken to enjoying doing is, you know, we've got this Discord chat where all of our patrons can talk to us and it's actually gotten really dynamic and lively. And one of the things we did is as a benefit for our patrons, we let them kind of send their rolling footage to us. We provide some critique and some feedback. So we've got this awesome back and forth where people are submitting their clips. We get to provide a concept based breakdown of our critique in terms of what we would suggest they do to tighten up the game a little bit. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, It was funny. One of the videos that someone sent, they sent in this video and I critiqued it. And then I realized he was actually the other guy in the video. (laughs) I had to redo it over again. (laughs) (laughs) And we had that one interesting situation that you were doing where actually both people in the role were patrons. So you kind of have to (laughs) both coach for and against both people, which is kind of an interesting thing I've never had to really do before, where you're simultaneously providing feedback to both parties. Yeah. Uh, you just got to just like what you said, you're giving feedback to both people that rather than just one. But it's useful to have experienced, knowledgeable, conceptual approach uh, voiceovers on your on your training and on your competition. So you can maybe see things that you didn't see before or just get a second opinion other than your, uh, you know, your current professor. I think it's 
I think it's a lot of value. So I think so too. And the feedback has certainly been such so far that people have really liked it. I mean, of course, the audio podcast and the course stuff we make and the newsletter are great resources. But if you've ever wanted to actually wonder, okay, how does this actually work in action? I mean, we can provide videos and there's actually a lot of good resources for finding videos. But sometimes the most useful thing is to know how this exactly applies to what you're already doing. And the best way that I found to do that, especially if you want to do this on a worldwide basis, is shoot us your videos and then we can just provide direct narration over top of them to tell you how all of this stuff maps back. So again, um, if there weren't enough reasons already, there's another great reason to support us on Patreon because you'll get access to this stuff. Of course, we'll plug this at the end of the show. I think that's a, probably a good enough advertisement to start this thing off, Matt. <laughs> what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, I'm just going to pause for a second. My cat's scratching at the door. Of course your cat's scratching at the door because this is BJJ Mental Models. Are we going to edit this out or... Of course, I'm not going to edit it out. Why don't you just let him in and he can provide some feedback? Hold on. (laughs) See, what I want to know is which cat is this? Is this the big one or the little one? Fuck you. Get in here. (laughs) Always fucking with my shit. All right. Okay. Was it the big one or the little one? Uh, It's the little girl. Uh, The older. Ornery one. I guarantee she's going to scratch again to go into the uh, where we keep her food. Perfect. So we're five minutes in. We've plugged our Patreon. The cats interrupted the podcast (laughs) already. We're basically done, right? I don't think there's anything else we need to do. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Let's wrap this up. I guess on that note, we could actually start talking about jujitsu stuff. So those of you who have been keeping score know that we're in the middle of an open guard series. This is the fifth and final episode in the series. That's not to say that this covers every single possible conceivable open guard, but it's a good sampler. So up until now, in the first few episodes, we've talked about things like Delahiva guard, X guard, butterfly guard, gi based guards. In this last episode in the series, we want to talk about seated guards. So this is a very, very powerful strategy, something that Matt and I have talked ad nauseum about before on prior episodes. We've brought it up, but we've never really done a detailed breakdown. So I want to take the time to do that now because playing a seated guard is such a critical part of an open guard strategy. And just to define this for those who are not entirely sure what falls under this classification, Seated guards are when you're basically scooting around on your butt. Like when you think of butt scooting, that's basically a seated guard. This can be the variant where you're just kind of like scooting around in a butterfly. It can be uh, instep guard, also known as shin to shin guard. This is where you're in close, you're hugging the guy's leg, you've got your shin crossed up against their shin. It can also be situations where you're playing kind of like a koala guard, where you're hugging onto the person's leg uh, as they're standing up. Usually you do this because you're going into like a single or a dog fight. I also like to call that position the daddy's home guard because it's like a little kid holding yes. onto their dad's leg. <laughs> but basically... When you're talking about seated guards, usually this means you're on your butt, but you're sitting upright. You're not lying down like you would be in closed guard or Delahiva guard. You're sitting upright on your butt. And although it's not required, oftentimes one of the interesting scenarios with seated guard is that your opponent is likely going to be standing up. Not always. I mean, if you're playing butterfly guard, for example, they'll likely be kneeling down on one or both knees. But with seated guards, you're often going to be playing from this position where you are on your butt and your opponent is on both feet. 
Yeah, um, a lot of the stuff I'll quote today. It's, it's I, I swear every episode I quote Gordon now, just because he's his instruction and the Danaher system has influenced my game so we much. We should mail but. this fucker and get him to send us like an affiliate code <laughs> or something so we make money every time we plug this guy. Like we plug him more than Rob and Rob is your damn professor. At least, you know, Rob is like a friend of the show. So I don't feel bad that we give him free press. But what the fuck has Gordon done for us? This guy needs to give us some cash. I know. Well, I mean, it's just he's, he's put out these instructionals recently and they're just they're really good and uh, they've influenced my game a lot. So especially when we're talking about seated guard, you know, he just put out an instructional on seated guard not too long ago. So it does make sense that we reference him and a lot of the concepts that I go over when I teach now, a lot of them come from him. So, uh, you know, he basically breaks down his guard, at least from what I can see, into uh, two phases right now. One is a seated guard, which is the instructional he just put out. And the other one is yet to be released. It is the supine guard. Supine? Supine? What am I saying? Which one is it, Steve? I think it's supine. And that's the one where you're basically kind of like... You're on your back. Where you're on your back. Okay, so that's that's the one where you're lying on your back. So this would be things like close guard or Delaheva guard. Correct. So I, I like how he sort of breaks it down into those two sections. And he did that because I think he was originally going to do all one section, but then... It's just too much material for for one DVD. So I have the seated guard instructional. It's really awesome. And the supine guards yet to come up. The seated instructional, he breaks down in, into four scenarios, which I actually really like. And again, this is no gi, right? So this is this is different from the gi because in the gi, if you get grips and you fall to your back, you still have tons of options. As long as you are gripping and, you know, actively winning the grip fights, you, you have lots of options spider guards, you know, lapel guards and different ways you can type your opponent. Whereas in Nogi, you don't have any of those things. So a lot of your power when you're playing seated guard, you know, especially a position like butterfly guard where you're where you're looking for the inside position. That's where all your elevations, all your power comes from the seated guard. So it is it's a it's different, but there is still concepts that are parallel Gi and Nogi. But he basically breaks it down first into the possible scenarios that you'll find yourself in. So the four main scenarios you find yourself in are based on your opponent's stances. So there's, you know, standing with a staggered stance, which I think is the most, it's the best passing stance in my opinion. That is the one you'll see Gordon use mostly. So standing with a staggered stance, standing with a linear stance. So having two feet running in the same line. I've actually been watching old IBJJF videos on YouTube and I'm finding that like in the 2000, 2010 era, a lot of guys were passing with their feet in a straight line. Like you can see Cobrina do this, even like Mendez bros a lot of the time, these guys will stand with their feet in a straight line. Keep in mind, this is now gi grappling. So it's again, slightly different. Nowadays, at least the way that Gordon talks about his passing system is he tries to always split the legs. So stepping one foot in the middle and usually to get that, you have a staggered stance. And then stance number three would be you know, your opponent kneeling with one knee up and then the fourth stance would be opponent on both knees. So for each of these scenarios, Gordon sort of has game plans and strategies to off balance, to control arms, control the head, to enter into the legs. Because of the way that it's broken down systematically, it's very easy to understand, Okay, if my opponent has this stance, what stance should I have? And just a side note, I will say some of the criticism that I do have of the instructionals that Gordon has, uh, and it's actually something I've been meaning to 
to tell BJJ fanatics, because this is how they seem to do all of their instructionals, is that when you do instructionals and you have whatever, eight, 10 volumes, and then each volume is literally like an hour long video with just different clips in it, it makes it way more difficult to navigate the instructional. That's why I really like the grapple arts instructional breakdowns, because it's so much easier to go to the menu and to access whatever technique you want under whatever subject it is. So you can skip right away to the technique you're looking for. Whereas in the BJJ Fanatics, they just don't have that. So, you know, you'd think that they would have better navigation through their instructionals because they have, you know, they clearly have the production quality and they have the they have the budget and they have the big names on these instructionals. I think they would be smart for them to maybe make it a little bit more accessible for people. Just a side note. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting thing that I've heard as well. I mean, I just due to how time strapped I am, I don't spend that much time watching grappling instructionals. I have to be pretty convinced it's going to be a total game changer for me to make that investment of time. It's not even about the money, but this is one thing I have heard and kind of guessed at regarding BJJ fanatics, which is that they really go for quantity over quality at this point. Like if you're like me, when you go onto Facebook every single day, you get a new ad for a new BJJ Fanatics DVD or instructional. And they've got like so many. It is actually baffling that they're able to put out that much content. And it really feels like their strategy is to go for quantity over quality where they're just like they'll get someone to put a camera in front of them, yak for a few hours, just put it up. They don't really put a lot of thought into editing, it seems, in terms of making the content more concise and valuable. And to your point, navigation is a big deal. That is one thing about grapple arts and Stefan Kesting's stuff, and you know this firsthand, Matt, from having made an instructional with him, he puts a lot of thought into quality and packaging and presentation and navigation. And that's one of the great things about his app is you get these really reasonably priced instructionals and they're broken down super well. It's super duper easy to find the exact thing that you're looking for. And that's the one of the things that I like about a lot of his and the stuff that he's done with Rob is you can not just go through this stuff sequentially, but it's organized well enough that you can kind of find it like an index. I mean, there have been times when I wanted to talk about some specific thing and I'll be thinking to myself, what was it that Bernanke said about the spine frame? And then I'll think, oh yeah, I can just open up my phone, navigate into his thing, go right to that section. And I can see the like very brief clip where he talks specifically about that. And man, when you're packaging information, presentation and navigability are so important. And I kind of feel like a lot of people take that for granted. That's been something that we've been trying to do with our stuff is to come up with a way that we can better package it now that we've got like a ton of content, like the BJJ mental models library of content has gotten so big that now we have to start worrying not just about making this stuff, but how do we make it something that people can easily access and navigate through? And that's kind of the challenge now that we have, and we're trying to figure out, but I know a bit of a side note, but that's actually a really important thing to think about when it comes to how you package and consume content is a big part of teaching is not just what you say, but structuring things in such a way that it's easy to find and to recall. Yeah, I don't know that I agree that it is always quantity over quality, although I do see how you could say that because some instructionals I see on BJJ Fanatics and I'm just like, really? Like, I, I just don't think anyone's going to buy this. I don't know the quality of the product necessarily. I love their self-defense ones where they'll find some guy that you've never heard of and it's like, <laughs> you know, the instructional on how to kill a man with your bare hands in 10 Dude, seconds. The, the, the self-defense instructionals are just, I mean, 
again, I haven't watched them, but they just look horrible. And, and, and that's kind of one of the main things I'm talking about, but I do, I think that's actually a separate entity of BJJ fanatics. That's just fanatics. It's just fanatics. It might fall under the same umbrella. Like I know they have wrestling fanatics and things like that, but, um, but definitely like the quality of Gordon's instructionals is incredible. Uh, it's just the way that it is package and you know and and even the the footage is excellent like the the way they edit it uh all the production value is awesome i'm more so just being critical of how the customer accesses it on the database once they get it because Mm -hmm. uh it, it it does make it hard to go to techniques that you're looking for it would be nice if it was sort of laid out in a table of contents type fashion the way uh stefan does his instructional so i think that that is something that they're kind of missing but of course you know they have they literally have the the best nogi grappler doing his instruction so i can't say that the instruction's not good it's just it, the way it's laid out isn't fantastic yeah yeah i mean they have the benefit of having access to the best minds in this sport but that's kind of a phase two problem right when you're making online content. Phase one is, okay, I've got to build up this library of quality stuff. But then at some point after you've been doing it for a while, you realize, okay, (laughs) now I've got this massive library of stuff. How do I help people navigate through it? And that's kind of a a second level concern and something that I, I hope they sort out. So Matt, as we've discussed, there's two types of guards that you can play when one guy's standing up and the other guy is on the ground. There is supine guard, which is where the guy on the ground is lying down on his back. And there is seated guard where the person is sitting upright. Mm -hmm. Now I've got a history lesson for you. Do you want to hear it? I love it. What is it? History of sitting? Actually, yes. So (laughs) when you're in supine guard, meaning you're laying down on your back and your opponent is standing up, you may have heard this referred to as Ali Inoki position. You ever heard that before? No, never. Okay, this episode is about seated guard, but supine guard and seated guard are intertwined. So let's talk about this. So in MMA, commentators will sometimes refer to this position where one person is down on the ground in supine guard and the other person is standing as Ali Enoki position. And the reason why is because this harkens back to what might be the very first modern MMA fight, which was an MMA fight between the pro wrestler Antonio Inoki, very famous Japanese pro wrestler with a giant chin, and Muhammad Ali. Oh yeah, yes, yes, I have heard of this. And and so the backstory is what actually happened was back in the 60s, they agreed to a fight. So you've got Muhammad Ali, you know, he's like just such a larger than life character, incredible promoter. And you've got Antonio Inoki, one of the biggest pro wrestlers in the world in terms of fame at the time. They agreed to do a fight. Now, what exactly happened is kind of lost to time. No one has really actually come forward with a totally true confirmable story. And the other thing is pro wrestling is like all bullshit anyway. So you can never tell when people are lying to you and when they're not. (laughs) But one of the theories is that Muhammad Ali shows up in Japan, he's ready to do this fight, and then he finds out at like the last minute, oh shit, this is a real fight. Like he thought it was a fake pro wrestling match and it was going to be totally scripted and fake. But then he realized like, okay, no, this is actually like an exhibition fight. And he realized, shit, like if I lose to a pro wrestler, my reputation is totally done. So at the last minute, allegedly Ali and his lawyers, they all lawyer up and they basically refuse to compete unless some very, very specific changes are made to the rules. And one of the changes they make is like they want to, basically try to force this into a boxing match where Ali will probably win. So they add in a rule where 
kicks can only be thrown if your opponent is on the ground. So you can't basically do kickboxing. If you're standing, you can't actually stand up and like do standing kicks. So what Inoki does when the fight actually happens is he basically games those rules and he sits down on the ground for the entire fight <laughs> and kicks Ali in the legs. And of course, from that position, Ali can't strike him, right? And Ali, like, so he is basically this awkward fight where this dude is scooting around on the ground, kicking Ali's legs, actually having a lot of success with the strategy. And then at the end of the fight after it, it just gets called a drop. Sounds horrible. <laughs> Sounds like the biggest waste of time ever. But anyway, it was actually famous because that's one of the first high profile, true modern MMA fights with a boxer and a wrestler going at it under this hilariously fucked up rule set. So anyway, sometimes when you see that configuration, you will hear that referred to as Ali Inoki position. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's funny. That kind of reminds me of like these crossover grappling matches that they're having now with, you know, they'll get like Gordon Ryan versus Bo Nickel or Gordon Ryan versus uh, Pat Downey or Nicky Ryan just signed a match against God. I don't even remember what the guy's name is, but essentially it's it's Nicky Ryan versus a really good wrestler or so. I think he's good. And now I think we're going to see more of these like cross promotional grappling matches to sort of get jujitsu people, I guess, more acquainted with wrestling people and wrestling people more acquainted with jujitsu people. And at the end of the day, I mean, I, it, I, I don't really think it proves much. It's just more for fun. Like, for example, they did the Pat Downey match versus Gordon Ryan. They did the first match, which was like an ADCC rules match or whatever. I think it was no time limit. And Pat Downey basically like cardio tapped and faked a submission. I think it was like a it was just like a shoulder clamp or whatever from the back. And Pat Downey tapped. And then they had a wrestling match. And Pat Downey just like destroyed him. And I can't even remember how, what amount of time is like under a minute. So it's like, really, what did we prove? I mean, I don't know. Gordon says, well, he couldn't score a point on me under the ADCC sort of grappling rule set. So uh, therefore, I am one of the best. I have the best wrestling for grappling under this rule set. And then you ask Pat Downey, he's like, I fucked that guy up. So it's like, really, what did we learn? Like nothing really. It's just it's just for fun and just to just to get eyes on both sports, I think. But it is it's kind of a cool idea to see these crossover sports. They do interest me. But again, at the end of the day, they're not really worth much in terms of what they prove. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. It reminds me of a lot of the exhibition fights that they'll have in Japan. It's interesting. It's fun. But the reality is, if the rules are negotiable, then that kind of means there isn't really a sport because both parties are going to be constantly trying to negotiate rules that are favorable to them. And more importantly, it means that the rules themselves might change on a fight by fight basis. So how can you really determine who's the best when the rules are different in every single fight? So it's more of one of those things where it's fun, but... At the end of the day, like you said, it doesn't really allow you to prove anything, but it certainly is great entertainment. And honestly, if that helps people, you know, pay the bills, have a good career, do it in a safe way, if it draws eyes to the sport, I can't really complain, right? No. I, I think, and also it's interesting to kind of shake it up and add a little bit of variability, but it certainly does make it hard to have that honest conversation about, okay, who is really the best? Because if the rule set itself is negotiable, then you don't really have that fair objective benchmark that you can use to measure everybody over time. Yeah. So like we're like 25 minutes in. We haven't actually discussed anything <laughs> to do with seated guard. This is probably going to have to be a multiple part series. Well, hold on. Hold on. That's not true. We talked about Ali and Inoki. 
But yeah, so far in, we've plugged the Patreon. The cats have interrupted the podcast. We plugged Gordon. We talked about wrestling. So this is kind of like the meme episode, but I think we can probably <laughs> switch to making it more valuable now. Let's turn this thing around. <laughs> yeah, let's turn the ship around here. So you mentioned earlier on in the episode that in Gordon's DVD and in your own studies, you noticed that in terms of where people place their legs when they're the top guy in seated guard, it used to be that they would kind of have their legs like aligned parallel to each other. But now you often see guys like Gordon adopting a staggered stance. My personal philosophy is if you're the guy on top and your opponent is trying to play a seated guard on you, I kind of feel like either stance can work. But the one thing that has to hold true in all cases is you have to minimize the attack vectors to your legs. You can't just walk in there and make it easy for your opponent to tie up and tangle and get leverage over your legs. That's the thing that's going to make the seated guard effective. So whether you go in with kind of like a squared up stance, you can do that in some situations. Or if you go to like a split configuration where you're staggered, that can also work. But I sort of feel like the common thread is you have to minimize that attack vector so your opponent cannot get good access to and leverage over your legs. Yeah, uh, if you watch Gordon, he immediately tries to step one leg in the middle. And then from there, he has back step options. He's basically in that hub headquarters position where That's where his system really begins, where he bases all of his guard passing off of your reactions. If you watch a guy like Wagner Hosha, he does he leg pummels as well, but he doesn't really step one leg in the middle. He actually kind of just sits on the hooks, whereas Gordon will try and step in the middle and put his post his hands forward so he can begin float passing and putting his weight on his opponent's upper body. Wagner kind of hangs back and postures up. And and a lot of the time gives up double inside position, but he's just so heavy and he has such good base that the guy very rarely gets into into strong leg entanglement. So there's different ways you can approach whether you're staggered or squared. And that's kind of it kind of depends what kind of guard passing style you like. But the way that, you know, Gordon sort of plays, at least from the seated guard, is to have both legs on the inside as a guard player. So that's kind of the reoccurring theme that I see in the instructional. And it's what's given me most success when I'm going against bigger opponents, really athletic opponents, opponents that are really good at dropping into leg locks and things like that. Having your feet on the inside is generally a safe idea. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Like, I think that when you're playing a seated guard, trying to get inside channel control, if you're the guy on the bottom, is almost always a good idea. And for the guy on the top, trying to also pummel for inside channel control is also almost a good idea. Because I don't know if you would agree with me on this, Matt, but I feel like the main strategy to use if you want to play a seated guard is you're trying to basically get access to a leg and start using that for leverage. And that's how you set up your sweeps and your takedowns and your submissions from there. And you're generally going to probably want inside channel control in most cases for that. So if you're the guy on the top, you don't want the guy on the bottom to start tangling up your legs. And one of the best ways to shut that down is to get inside channel control. If you let the guy wrap around your leg, you're kind of cooked, right? If you're standing and he's on the bottom playing a seated guard. Yeah, and and standing with both legs inside is not a good idea either because they can do that weird like mermaid sweep where they lock your knees together with basically a closed guard and they tip you over. Uh, one leg in, one leg out is really effective and it opens up cross ashes, it opens up passing That's kind of the passing position that I like. And it's important to understand the differences in the stances. So again, I'll just reiterate again, opponent standing with linear stance, opponent standing with staggered stance, opponent kneeling with one knee up and opponent kneeling on two knees. So like 
I mean, we could just start breaking down these positions. It's important to understand that when you're sitting, off balancing is one of the main things you need to try and do, whether it's gi or no gi. So if my opponent is standing over me, it's really unlikely that I'm going to be able to grab their head. You know, unless they're like bending over, grabbing my legs, I won't usually have access to the head if they're posturing up. So then I have to try and off balance them either by winning the hand fight battle or if they don't even give me their hands, they just step in with like a really tall stance, harassing the legs with double koichis and different types of, uh, you know, you can pull the knee to create your opponent's steps, which again opens up. Usually it creates a square stance. So Gordon basically a lot of his attacks from the seated position against someone who is has a staggered stance, a strong passing stance, is to make them step the back leg forward, creating a square stance. So once he funnels his opponent into a square stance, that's where he has all of his entrances into Ashigurami. That's where he is able to do double Koichi. Double Koichi is just a a Japanese way to say idiot sweep. <laughs> it sounds much more dignified. That's not the that's not the direct translation, but that is what it's also known as. And yeah, he's basically trying to funnel his opponent into a, a stance where their legs are square. And he calls that exposing the center line. Or he's going to try to expose the back, right? So this can, basically the main places he tries to grab on the body is he tries to get uh, either two-on-ones on the arms, collar ties if they're kneeling or their head is low enough to grab, Or if neither of those are available, he goes to the legs. So he can grab the back of the knee and pull it forward, creating a square stance. I forget the Japanese names he uses, but basically like double koichis and hooking with your legs to almost like you're standing and doing uh, ashiwaza from a standing position where you're trying to land foot sweeps. It's basically that from the seated position. It's really interesting to watch Gordon do this. And it's still it's a work in progress for me because it's not easy. But once you start playing with it, you can start to see how he is making things happen because there will be times when your opponent who's passing won't give you their arms or their head. And so then you have to do what Gordon calls harassing the legs and getting them moving and exposing the center line. And also important to know that when you're in the seated guard and you're fighting for two-on-ones on the wrist, whether it's two-on-one elbow or arm drags or two-on-one with hands facing down or hands facing up, when they pull their arm back, they are doing two things. Number one, they're exposing their legs to you. So when the upper body disappears, usually the lower body presents itself. And the second thing is their momentum now goes from moving forward towards you to moving backwards, like they're recoiling, trying to get their limb back. And that's what sets up the double Kuichi. So it's it's kind of a good way, you know, his systems are very well put together, the way that he bases it on reactions. And one thing about his instruction that I really like is the way that he systemizes the positioning. So he's like, okay, these are the four main scenarios let's break them down system by system so we can we can look at how they're different look at what's available to us and it's just like it's just really well planned i find mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now i really like how you've kind of categorized this into four different leg configurations because that's a good point and well, i didn't <laughs> I'm literally stealing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gordon did. But that's a great way to think about these things. And, you know, with a lot of positions, I think people, at least me, when I was more junior in jujitsu, I would often kind of get it into my head that I wanted to do this one particular technique. And I would find, man, I just can't make it work. And then I'd realize later on down the road that, you know what, some of these things, they're very context dependent. Like some techniques are only going to work if your opponent is in a square stance or some are only going to work if they're in a staggered stance and you can't really force something that isn't there. 
And I like the way you've organized this, or rather that Gordon has organized it, because you've basically organized things into the predictable reactions. You've effectively said that, like, look, when you're playing Ali Inoki position, there are four main ways that your opponent is going to structure their legs. And if you understand what those four configurations are, then you're going to be much more equipped to go into the right technique, depending on where your opponent has placed their legs. So... One of the things you talked about was the difference between a squared stance and a staggered stance. I mean, in most martial arts, the squared stance is kind of frowned upon. And the reason why, like, I mean, a lot of martial arts like Wing Chun, for example, they adopt a squared stance where basically both of your feet are in line with each other. And the problem with a squared stance, generally speaking, is that you don't have the ability to move in all directions, right? You can't absorb base in all different directions. Like if you've got both of your feet in line with each other, if I push you straight backwards or I pull you straight forwards, it's going to be hard for you to absorb that. It's fine if I'm pushing you side to side, but if I'm just pushing you straight back or pulling you forwards, a squared stance makes that hard. Whereas a staggered stance where you've got one foot forward, that allows you to absorb force in all directions, forward, back, left, right. So it's much more resilient in many cases. Now that said, in jiu-jitsu, there are some select scenarios where a square stance is actually very effective. And usually where that comes up is if you can use your squared stance to cage your opponent's movement. So, for example, if you're inside someone's guard, like you can take a squared stance if you're doing so in such a way that your grips and the placement of your knees locks your opponent's hips and prevents them from moving. Like a lot of pressure passes kind of work that way where you have a a squared stance on your opponent, but you are using your squared stance to lock both of their hips. So just something to think about is understanding that these four different configurations, they're kind of like the predictable responses when you're playing seated guard. And think about that. Like my opponent can either be square to me, they can be staggered, They can be down on one knee or they can be down on both knees. And each different scenario is going to have different advantages and disadvantages to you. And you're going to want to use the right tactic accordingly in each situation. Yeah. And I mean, maybe the one of the reasons why we're bringing Gordon up so much in this episode is because he he literally has the the best seated guard in the world right now on a nogi level. So it makes sense that we do talk about him. And one thing that sets his guard apart from others is the concept that he calls pressuring from the bottom. So a lot of the time when I, you know, maybe five years ago before Gordon was sort of becoming really popular and maybe I hadn't gotten into the legs as much and I was arguably playing my no-gi guard, kind of like how I would play a gi guard just literally without a gi and doing it all wrong. I still see people do this today and I just find it not as effective is you kind of get caught in these supine defensive cycle guards where you fall into a reverse de la Hiva or you fall into a de la Hiva and you're defending. Whereas what Gordon has done is he is basically creating what he calls pressure from the bottom. So if you can create pressure from the bottom, you know, the way that he mentions it is, is uh, he talks about harassing the legs. So you're always making them take steps by using your feet as hooks. You're always going to try and, you know, gain control of either their wrists, elbows, head, or legs, like you're just looking for levers and you're looking off balance as opposed to falling to your back into a supine guard and trying to invert underneath and do all that stuff. Instead of taking that approach, you never really see Gordon inverting underneath, you know, maybe when he's entering into cross ashes and things like that. But like, I can't remember the last time I saw Gordon do 
Kiss of the Dragon, for example, or a Baron Bolo. You dude, know, he dude, just- I got I got to tell you, I've been catching up on my movies, and I was watching John Wick two yesterday, and there is a part in that movie where during a gunfight, someone does a Kiss of the Dragon to escape getting shot. <laughs> that's amazing it's fucking amazing like john wick is trying to shoot someone who's like down on the ground and the guy does a kiss of the dragon underneath to dodge the bullets did he come up for the two i don't remember (laughs) but yeah and, and and even just watching like a guy like gordon my game has become so much more simplified because I'm re I'm realizing like he doesn't force himself into these inverted positions he's not doing anything really fancy he's just He's sticking with the idea of creating pressure from the bottom. And you know that saying, the best defense is a good offense, right? So if he's always attacking and always, you know, exposing his opponent's center line and, you know, looking for levers, looking for risk control, then the opponent can never really get off into a position where they're taking control. And if they do take control, if they do get into an offensive cycle where they're passing Gordon's guard, Gordon basically just like falls to his back, shells up. He either tries to elevate them into a position or he'll just reset back to a seated guard. And it's like he never really lets the guy get deep into passes because his guard retention is so good. But he also understands how to remain in an offensive cycle with his guard. And to do that, you need to make your opponent post their hands on the floor. So great example there that really highlights how jujitsu has evolved over the decades. I mean, if you look back at old school jujitsu fights, particularly in the UFC, right, when Hoist Gracie's in there doing his magic, one of the things that was kind of a hallmark of jujitsu at the time is you could go to a supine guard like close guard and not really have to worry about the strategy getting there because anyone in their right mind with the knowledge that people had back then they're going to jump right into the guy's closed guard. Like, you know, you've fallen onto your back into this very, very vulnerable looking position. Of course, the other guy's going to jump into your guard and start attacking from there. But as we've learned more about jujitsu over the decades, people have realized now that, look, if you're fighting a good jujitero, you don't want to jump into their guard. So a lot of the time, if the guy flops into a supine guard, you just don't engage. You just keep standing up. And that's when you started to see the arrival and the innovation of things like standing passes. And in MMA, where people would just not go into someone's closed guard. And that's kind of forced a change in the game strategy. And that's when things like seated guards started to become essential. Because if you just go to a supine guard, I mean, that works great if your opponent takes the bait and they dive in. But if they don't, and they're standing and you're lying on your back, then you have basically ceded the tempo to them. They are now free to set up whatever attack sequence they want. So the brilliance of seated guards is like you said, Matt, they allow the person on the bottom to create pressure. You can get up on the bottom and you can actively attack the person despite the fact that you're on the bottom. So you can actually dictate the pace even though you're the guy who's sitting down on his butt. That's actually one of the critical things about seated guards and a mistake I made for a long time, which was that, I would rely on going to close guard or I would rely on Delaheva guard. And that used to work in the early days of my training because guys would just engage me there. But then once people started standing in response to that, I'd find myself in these awkward situations where I just sit down, even if the guy was still standing in my guard, which is not always a good thing to do. And it has only been over the last few years that I've really tried to get more proactive about that and make sure that, look, if I'm in that position where I'm down and he's up, I try to go to a seated guard and make sure that I'm being offensive from the bottom. Yeah. And I think the strength of Gordon, well, I don't even want to say it is Gordon's thing because I know that the the Danaher guys have been doing this for a long time. Like Eddie Cummings back when he was one of the better, smaller guys in the game, 
he was a master of hand fighting as well. Hand fighting is one of the most important things to have a successful seated guard in no gi and grip fighting in the gi. I can remember when my professor Rob, he went to New York a few years ago uh, and trained with Eddie back when he was still training at Danaher's. You know, he he spent like a good week with him. And when he came back, he took he came back with all these different concepts of like that's where really the idea of wedges and, you know, Rob was already talking about levers and things like that. But the, the wedges used to generate really great, tremendous breaking power and leg locks. That's where he sort of got those concepts from and uh, also the hand fighting concepts. So that's sort of how Eddie was entering into these different ashigurami it was he was he's always dominating the two-on-ones and things like that and i can remember when rob first showed me that i was like dude how, this, how does this work like it's so slippery and no gi how can i make the you know how can you make these grips sustainable because i'm used to the gi where you grab cloth and it's like real sticky you know and your opponent has to break the grips you grab a two-on-one if you if you don't know how to do it and it just feels like the arm just slides away but the more you practice the two-on-ones the more you see how much that that really dominates the engagement phase. And if, if you're always winning the engagement phase, it's super difficult for your opponent to blitz you. And it's really difficult for them to get you into that defensive cycle. So at least once a week, we do at my gym grip fighting for the nogi class. And it's usually one seated, one kneeling or just double seated position as a warm up because it is such an important tool and the grip fighting aspect is such an underrated teaching method when you're when it comes to actually winning jujitsu. I think it's underrepresented in a lot of gyms when it comes to actual training. And I think that the grip fighting just leads you down a path of success. So if you're not doing that, then you kind of end up playing reactive jujitsu, whereas focusing heavily on the grip fighting, it's a great warm up. It's very, very safe and very effective. Yeah, yeah. We harp on this a lot. I know everyone knows, but one of the more critical mental models to having a lot of success in jiu-jitsu is understanding that grips dictate position. It is very hard to get into a solid position or advance to the position you want unless you navigate the grips first. It is really the grips that set up everything else that comes after, and that is deceptively critical when it comes to seated guards, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Like, think about it this way. You're in this alley and oki position. You're on your ass your opponent is three feet away from you. How do you get in close enough that you can actually do any damage? The mistake a lot of people make is they just try to butt scoot in. I don't like to do that because that's giving your opponent like three feet of space during which they can just murder you because you have no control over them and they're in a dominant position. I like to call it the killing fields where, you know, you're sitting on the ground, you've got to cross this massive unprotected space where you're totally vulnerable. It reminds me of that old Mel Gibson movie, Gallipoli, which is like all about the campaign of Gallipoli, where basically like the soldiers just have to run across the fields while the other side is just shooting right at them <laughs> you know yeah. that is very much what is like when you're playing seated guard and matt if you recall I, I did a private with you many years ago where i asked for your help on this exact problem which is how do you even get into seated guard when your opponent is able to attack you on your entry mm -hmm. and really the way that you have to do it is you have to navigate the grips before you enter. If you just kind of butt scoot in on your opponent's leg and try to grab it, you're going to have a really bad time. Now, sometimes you'll get lucky and your opponent will just like kneel down and then you can just go right into butterfly. But that's a very gentlemanly way to navigate that position. A lot of the time they're going to be managing the distance and trying to pass you or even trying to choke you or something while you're in the process of trying to enter. So what you have to do is establish a grip that you can use to control the range 
change and get inside safely before you get into that seated guard. So a few ways to do that if you're on the bottom in Ali Inoki position, like you're the Inoki in this configuration. What I like to do is I try to secure my opponent's hand. I know that one of the things that you've done in the past, Matt, is you'll try to go for an arm drag on the guy on the top and then you'll use that as an entry into a leg entanglement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if they posture up. Yeah. Another thing you can do is rather than butt scooting in on the person, you can go in from standing. Basically, you can go in from a neutral standing position. And as soon as you can grab and secure their arm, just sit right down directly into a seated guard. And then you bypass that whole killing field problem. So that's one way to do it. But it really illustrates the importance of the grips when it comes to getting into a seated guard. If you are trying to play a seated guard and you're finding that every time you try, your opponent passes you immediately or they push you down onto your back or they just straight up guillotine you while you're going in, probably that means you're not securing an effective grip before you enter. Because if you have good grip control over your opponent, especially their dominant hand as you enter, most of those options go out the door and you should be able to get on the inside much safer. In situations where you have to make grips first, like in an ideal world, you would grab first on a wrist and then sit into the seated guard. But even a lot of the time when that happens, you end up losing your grip anyways. I think in that case, if you have a wrist, you know, a two on one and then you sit, the best thing to do is to immediately pull a Kazushi and try and get into the legs or definitely try and make them post. However, that's not always the case. And there will be times when the rules don't make it mandatory to get grips first. So you could literally just sit down as soon as the match starts and start scooting towards your opponent. So this also exists. If you like playing seated guard, there's always going to be situations where there's a distance between you and your opponent. You know, they're just out of range for you to actually grab them. So you're right. It is kind of dangerous in that in that range because your opponent can set up blitzes from there before you can even come close to grabbing the wrists. And this is where Gordon started using his legs. So, God, I just I wish I remembered the Japanese name that he uses for that. But basically, you're like using your your shoelaces as hooks and uh, you're able to either get the double Koichi or you you are uh, if your opponent is cross stepping across your center, you can actually hook the back of their leg and sort of carry their foot farther past than they would like to go almost like a like a dashi barai and then it, it exposes their back if you're quick enough so these are i just kind of look at these little foot sweepy movements from the seated guard as jabs basically in if we were relating it to a striking situation where it's like they manage the distance they create reactions and they create openings right and that's kind of what it's what's great uh and if your opponent decides they want to try and grab your legs by doing so, they expose their arms as levers and also mm-hmm. their head because they have to bend down to grab your legs. So if that's the case, if he goes to grab your legs, then that's when you can start off balancing with other with other levers aside from their legs. And it's important to also recognize the, the different stances of the opponent in the seated guard position. If you're in the seated guard position, Gordon says he's not usually sitting square. So he's not usually sitting with both hands in front hand fighting. He prefers more of a staggered stance from the bottom where he'll have one post behind him and one frame in front. And the advantage to this is you you are way more mobile. So if your opponent starts tracking you down or, or trying to create angles on you, you always have a post behind you that you can use to hip out and change angles and, and manage distance. Whereas if you're sitting up in like a butterfly guard, basically, with both hands in front of you, then you can't 
easily move your butt out of range because you don't have base. You don't really have a post. Plus, it's so much easier to put that person on their back. If I'm playing guard and I'm just sitting up with both hands in front of me, it's so easy for A, my opponent to put their foot in between my legs and split my legs, and B, put me on my back. And once they do that, I'm basically, you know, short of a reverse De La Hiva, I'm basically stuck in a defensive cycle now. So it's just not a way that I want to start my guard sequence off. It's not a strong way to win hand fighting or to off-balance my opponent. So the way that Gordon breaks it down is, uh, you know, if your opponent is standing with a square stance, or what I think of as a vulnerable stance, it's okay to have a square stance to them. It's okay to be in that butterfly guard stance. But if your opponent has a staggered stance, you can never go in a squared butterfly stance. And once I heard Gordon say that, I was like, okay, that's game changing because now I know that that is not a good position to be in. And I still see guys competing at a high level against you know, guard passers with staggered stances and they have square stances on the bottom. And it's like, well, that's you know, well, Gordon says, (laughs) well, Gordon says that's not good. So it must not be good, but I can totally see the thought process behind it because the guard passer can easily step a leg in the middle and get the inside position. And they can also easily uh, put you on your back and you don't have base behind you. So yeah, if, if your opponent is square, you can have a square stance from the bottom. If your opponent has a staggered stance standing, the stance you need to adopt is the leg that they have forward, their lead leg, is go- you're going to mirror that leg with your action leg or your probing leg. So if I if your right leg is forward, you're passing with your right leg forward, that would mean that I am going to post on my right hand and that my right leg is able to jab and hook and my left leg is posted on the mat and I'll be framing with my left hand. So it's a little bit hard to visualize. I recommend everyone get the instructional. But basically, when I mirror mirror my opponent's stance like this, it's very difficult for them to blitz me and take different angles without me hipping out. And because of the way that my body is configured, I can use my action leg to manage distance and deny the inside position. And I can also start creating offensive you know, movements with my action leg. So this is like really important when you're talking about seated opponent versus standing opponents in in the two different stances. Okay, that is something I have never heard before, but as you've been talking a light bulb totally went off in my head as well. Like Dude, I, it's that's what I'm saying like when when you watch these instructionals and I have the same the same moments with Danaher where like I'm basically relearning shit that I've done for years. Mm-hmm. But then I get a new concept or I or I get this new rule or principle out of these instructions. I'm like holy fuck like I just I just relearned something now and now that position that I already know that I'm already like decent at is now going to be way more successful Uh because I have this what would you call that mirrored stances yeah I believe that's what he calls it I'm not 100% sure what the name would be but just like just think if your opponent is leading with their right leg you want to be able to jab with your right leg okay and your left leg will be posted So your left knee will be close to your body and your left foot will be in base, allowing you to move and your left hand will be a frame. Your right foot will be the one that's hooking, blocking, uh, you know, managing the distance. And also because your left knee is posted and you created a bit of an a bit of an angle, it hides the center channel. So Uh it it makes it harder for your opponent to put their foot in between your legs. Got it. It's really it's really well thought out. Like it's an it's an excellent way to play seated guard. 
So obviously a lot of the left, right stuff is hard to explain on a podcast, but one of the things that I think is easier to understand, which you brought up was the concept of if your opponent takes a square stance, you can take a square stance. If your opponent takes a staggered stance, you take a staggered stance. And that's something that I'm just kind of playing through scenarios in my head right now. And I can't really think of an exception to that. Oh, I know. Like generally speaking, yeah, if if you take a squared stance, I can't think of a single situation where you would want to respond by taking the inverse. Like if if you're square and your opponent is staggered, that is not a good situation. But Mm -hmm. if you're both square, that works. So that's something that I think is definitely a mental model that we need to put into our database and something that we can definitely put in the show notes here because even just listening to you talk right now, I feel like it's opened my mind a lot to this realization about how to manage your stance. And I think too, this also is a great way to explain something that is very hard to get your head around, which is the importance of footwork. Mm-hmm. Something that is so critical to, especially the standing martial arts. The reality is in jujitsu, you can actually get pretty far without really thinking heavily about footwork, simply because there's so many other things on the go that you can put your emphasis into. But that is probably an area where people don't really put enough thought into when it comes to how should I place my feet and what are the rules for how I should adopt a stance. So definitely something that we should put into our database. Yeah, that's the, that's one of the biggest light bulbs that I had when I watched the seated guard instructional is that like, holy shit, he's actually really breaking down this different stances. And from there, you, once we've established those stances, like I never really thought of those stances when I had play seated guard, I would just kind of I would just kind of do my thing. Right. I think I think the majority of people out there are just doing their thing, yeah, you know, yeah. but they don't have the context of of different stances and how to address different stances. Even like, again, I'm going to plug Travis Stevens, his judo channel, um, just watching his stuff when he's talking about going righty versus lefty, lefty on lefty, righty on righty. It's like, oh, okay. So like I should really be basing my decisions on my opponent's stances relative to mine, you know, rather than just going in and trying to like do judo, thinking about how their stance takes away opportunities for me and also presents opportunities for me. And that's a really important thing. And and it's no different here from the from the seated position is like you really need to assess what your opponent's doing and then have the appropriate stance yourself so that you can you can react, you know, And, and keep in mind, if you have a staggered stance from the bottom, so you have one leg forward it's going to be really difficult for you to do like double Koichis and things like that. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is, is um, uh, what Gordon does a lot of time is he'll like, if there's too much distance between him and his opponent, is he, is he like lunges forward into a double Koichi? You know, you might, you maybe see him do this, Nikki do this, where they're basically in their seated guard with one, one hand on the ground so that they can lunge forward, kind of like a big, uh, like a joust and like throw their legs in between their legs and try and create traction behind their heels or behind their knees and get the inside position and just off balance their opponent. Again, this is, he just calls that harassing of the legs, right? And just like never letting your opponent settle, but you're creating that pressure, that constant pressure from the bottom. And again, his goal And when he said this concept, it kind of really made another light bulb tick is it's like, well, how do I make my opponent on top in a staggered stance vulnerable? I have to make them take the second step forward. And once I do that, I've created my opponent's square stance. So that's where you're going to get entries into all the leg entanglements. You're going to get the double Koichis. There's all different types of, of entries once your opponent becomes square. But as long as they're staggered, it's kind of difficult to attack them, you know, because they have like a nice, strong configuration it's not easy to get inside the legs it's not easy to make them post their hands from that position so it's like 
yeah, these these concepts really do add up. And then I'll just add one real quick thing, you know, because we discussed the two scenarios when your opponent's standing staggered in square stance. If your opponent is kneeling with one knee up or they're kneeling with both knees down, that is where you will also employ a square stance as well because they don't have the same side to side mobility that they would have when they're standing. So mm-hmm. it's totally fine to play butterfly guard against someone who is, you know, both knees down. Obviously, that's kind of the main the main place you would use a square stance from the guard or or if they have one knee up. And personally, for me, I think when someone has one knee up, that's like one of the worst passing positions. You know what I mean? Like one knee posted one knee down for the guard passer is just so vulnerable, I find. Yeah, I don't like it. I like to either have both knees down or both knees up. I don't like to be off balance like that simply because in jujitsu, there's too many ways the guys can exploit that. But yeah, that's actually a really great example. And, you know, butterfly guard is kind of an obvious one where your opponent is down on both knees a lot of the time. So they're squared and then you have both of your hooks in. So you're squared. So you're square to square. So you're mirrored. So that's okay. And I, you know, one of my favorite strategies for butterfly is I'll be playing butterfly and then I'll switch to like a technical base, you know, like a combat base where I'll turn onto my side and I'll put my hand down. And now that I think about that, every time I do that, where I switch to like a staggered stance, if my opponent sits there still in a square stance, I kill them every single time. And it's because they haven't matched stance. Whereas if they were to then switch to a similarly staggered stance to match mine, it would be much harder for me to do anything. But like just to kind of mentally explain this, I'll walk this through. Like when I'm playing butterfly, if my opponent is sitting there like a beast just on both knees and I can't move them, sometimes I switch to like a technical base where, you know, like from a technical standup, I, I put that one arm behind me and I'm kind of like leaning to the side. Yeah. And if my opponent just sits there, and they don't actually move their legs. I will just do a technical stand up and literally just run forward and knock them over. And it works every single time. Exactly. Because they have no base behind them. Whereas if they were to switch to mirror stances to me so that we were going stagger to stagger, that wouldn't work anymore. So that's actually a great strategy is if you ever notice that your opponent is off stance to you, it means there's definitely going to be some way that you can attack their position that they haven't thought of. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the combat base, as we call it, where it's one knee down, one knee up. However, if you can get that stance where you step one leg in the middle, that is a strong position Mm -hmm. because from there you can pass, you can do knee cuts and you can also backstep into the 411. So, but, but I think that would be considered different from like, attacking an opponent in a combat stance because if they've already gained the inside position then they've kind of already won the engagement phase so yeah to clarify i'm when i'm talking about like a technical stance i'm talking about when i'm the guy on the bottom Mm -hmm. like i'm on the bottom playing butterfly guard and i switch to like a technical stand-up i agree that when i'm the guy on the top that old school traditional technical stance where you've kind of got like one knee forward that is is sometimes called the combat base it just makes you vulnerable (laughs) yeah well this is a great example if the guy is squared up to you meaning he's probably playing closed guard and you switch to that technical combat base he's going to take delahiva on you every single time and it's because you're out of stance or what i found in the past is if my opponent plays square to me so they're probably in the closed guard or something 
if I can kind of pop up on both of my legs, I can use both of my knees to cage their hips. And people fucking hate that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great example of playing square to square. I really love that concept. And I, first of all, I think we've got to get that into our database, but it might even be an idea to try to break that down in an individual episode because it seems to me like such an important and critical concept. At least when you're you're in the seated guard and you're facing an opponent on both knees, you don't really have great access to their legs. Although you will be able to hand fight very effectively for two-on-ones, you'll be able to snap their head down because their head is at a level of such that you can reach their head, but you can't easily grab their ankle. You can't easily get a hook behind their leg. Like you had mentioned, if somebody posts their foot, like in a traditional combat stance, you could fall back to a Delahiva. But if you do that, then you deny yourself the inside position. So in the gi, I think that's a totally valid strategy. In no gi, I would actually avoid that. If it was no gi, what I would do if a, if an opponent plays one leg up, one leg down, is I would play the dilemma between the snap down and the ankle pick. So snapping the head down, heisting, coming up into either front headlocks or just, like you said, rushing your opponent down. Or if they realize they're getting snapped down and they posture back, that's when I can now go for the ankle pick because their foot is now exposed, right? They've When they post on one foot, they expose an, basically an extra lever for me. So that's why I'm not a big fan of that position. However, I will say, like I said before, if the passer can get to that, get to that position, but the foot is in the middle of the legs, it's a totally different scenario because you've denied them the inside position and now you're actually pretty much entering into a headquarters position. But again, that is not the engagement phase. That would be the second phase of guard. I see. I see. So what's interesting is we've talked in the past about very important strategic mental model, which is that you need to minimize attack vectors, meaning that the more opportunities you give your opponent to attack you, the more places where they can strike you the more vulnerable you're going to be because you can't defend against everything at once, right? That's why, for example, a common military strategy is to try to funnel your opponent through a narrow pass because if there's only one place your opponent can attack you from, it's a lot easier to triage that and manage that and you can focus all of your defenses in a single point. That's one of the reasons why the traditional Wing Chun stance where you stand with a squared stance, both feet like in the same line, doesn't really work very effectively because your opponent can strike you anywhere. Whereas the more traditional like boxer kickboxer stance where you're staggered and you have one foot forward, that approach is often desirable in a striking exchange because it means that your opponent doesn't have clear access to every single part of your body. They really can only hit you on the parts that are in front, meaning they've got access to like one side of your body, but not the other. And in addition to helping you generate power, that also means you have a pretty good idea where they're shot are going to come from. You have a pretty good idea how you're going to have to defend it. And I think that what you're talking about here, when you're talking about this squared versus staggered stance, is kind of like a subset of that concept. Basically, what you're saying is, okay, depending on what my opponent is doing, whether they are squared or staggered, I can tailor my own body position to minimize the attack vectors on myself, right? For example, if I'm squared up, and my opponent is staggered, I've got to be careful because they can attack me back, forward, left, or right. Whereas if I am squared and they are also squared, 
I don't really have to worry so much about the left to right. It's more going to be a forward or backward thing. So I know where the attacks are coming from and I can control it. And I feel like this is a very important thing when you're playing a seated guard, both from the top and the bottom, is understanding the attack vectors. Basically, where can your opponent attack you and trying to minimize and protect those. So as an example, if you're the guy on top and your opponent is playing a seated guard, you've got to know he's going to try to harass your legs. That's really one of the main strategies that they can employ, especially if you're standing. Whereas similarly, if you're the guy on the bottom, you've got to worry about things like getting blitzed. You've got to worry about what's going on with your head, because if you don't protect your head properly there's a good possibility they can actually just do like a snap guillotine on you or something. So I feel like this whole thing is a subset of that discussion about how to minimize attack vectors against yourself so that you know what your opponent is going to do when it comes to setting up their attack plan. Yep, you're absolutely right. It is minimizing attack vectors. And once he goes over that in the DVD, I was like, holy shit, like now now I feel like I actually have a direction. Like I know what stance I should have. And I actually should have a specific stance rather than just like, you know, doing what feels right. It's uh, it makes a lot of sense. And you can you can, you know, set yourself up for success just by making these small, small adjustments. Uh, Another thing I really like about his instructional is it's a very healthy balance between concepts and principles and then techniques. So it's like it's pretty split down the middle 50 50 It's very easy to watch. I find it's, you know, it's quick and to the point. It's just like I said, it's game changing stuff. So, again, I I feel like if anyone wants to improve their no gi game right now, that's definitely the resource that I would I would go to check out is Gordon Ryan stuff. He totally needs to be the thumbnail for this episode. Yeah, I know. We should actually reach out and be like, fuck you. Pay me. He'll be like, who are you? (laughs) He knows who we are. Just out of curiosity, which DVD series is this? Because I know there's so much stuff out there. If this thing is really that valuable, it would be good to call it out by name. Yeah, so I believe it is, um, I believe it's Attacking from the Seated Guard. God, I don't know the exact name. Hold on, I'm going to look it up. No, no, I'm going to look it up. We'll see who does it faster. Gordon, Ryan, Seated, Guard. You're going to find it. Systematically attacking from open guard seated position by Gordon Ryan. There you go. And I do like how he's broken it down into a seated position and a supine position. I think that's also very smart on his part. It's a good way to uh, structure his instructional. I mean, I, I remember when I did my instructional on Barambolo crab ride and, and rolling back takes and stuff like that. I, I must have done like four or five different drafts. The first draft I did you know, some of the stuff becomes kind of redundant. So you don't want to be redundant when you're filming, but you also want to be comprehensive. You don't want to skip anything and you want it to be entertaining the whole way through. So it's like, I actually had to change the the way that we laid out the instructional probably like four or five different times before I was finally like happy with it. So mm-hmm. I think that Gordon's done a really good job in terms of breaking it down into topics. However, I do think that the BJJ fanatics could do a better job of giving you better navigation throughout the instructionals. And and they, they all seem to follow that format, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny how like sometimes you can have these people who are so young and yet they're so good at organizing concepts and thoughts. And Gordon's a great example of that. And I mean, I understand that in terms of mat time, he's probably more senior than all of us. Yeah. But all the same, <laughs> it's really impressive how well some really young people are able to kind of organize and create these frameworks. It really goes to show that, you know, age isn't everything. And sometimes you can have these incredible insights at a very young age. Yeah, that's what you get when you work like 
12, 14 hours a day and you have <laughs> John Danaher as your mentor, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, Danaher, Gordon always just pushes his, Danaher has taught him everything, man. It really goes to show that guy is really brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, just fantastic stuff. I re- I recommend everyone check that out. We didn't even really get to like, oh, if your opponent is kneeling, if your opponent is on one knee or whatever, I recommend you guys get the DVD. It's yeah, so yeah. Good. I mean, of course, if your opponent is on two knees, you're kind of going into butterfly territory. And we talked about that exactly. in quite in depth. But yeah, the whole one yeah. knee thing, if you want to dig deep into that, man, Matt, it sounds like you really vouch for this product. I do, man. Yeah. I want to clarify, this is an unpaid sponsorship here. We get absolutely nothing out of this. So this is something that clearly Matt believes in. <laughs> This is the Gordon Ryan show, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even hearing about this secondhand has been very helpful to me. So I hope it's been helpful to everyone out there listening to. Yeah. Like, I wish I didn't have to keep mentioning him, honestly. (laughs) Uh, But fuck, like his stuff is just so good. Like it's it's changed my game so much. And when I teach it now in class, like I literally teach the stuff he shows in class and I'm seeing light bulbs go all off around the room and I'm seeing the the level of grip fighting changing, the strategies that the guys are using is is changing all from from this instruction. So definitely it's game changing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny we talking about like how this young guy is able to put together these breakthrough concepts. And one of the things that I I actually have a one of the episodes I've got in the bank, I did a quick off the cuff recording with Rob and we were talking about expertise. I'm kind of dreading editing it because, as you know, it takes a lot of time to edit Rob down. So he sounds like a mature grown up human being. <laughs> but one of the things we talked about was how, like, you know, there's a big difference between experience and expertise. You know, you can have all of the experience in the world, but what have you really learned from it, right? Sometimes you can have someone who technically is a lot younger, but just due to the way they've used their time, they've become an expert of a much higher caliber than the people who otherwise would be considered like, you know, the old dogs. I think jujitsu is a great example of that, right? Because I mean, if I were to ask you, Matt, like, you know, there's a lot of like black and red belts out there with like stripes all the way up to their navel on their belt. And like, I wouldn't want to train under these guys because they can barely string together a coherent thought. Um, <laughs> but then there's also a lot of younger guys who do an incredible job of teaching despite having nowhere near that much depth on the bench. And it just goes to show that sometimes age is not always the best decider when it comes to knowledge and expertise. No, it's not. And if you, if you listen to, to Gordon talk about his earlier days, he describes himself as a trigger warning retard when it comes to learning. Like he really struggled with jujitsu for a while. And then all of a sudden he just started ripping it up. And he says, he says one of the best things that he was good at, like he felt himself really good in all positions he felt like his uh, his guard was real good. His passing was good, but his leg entries and leg attacks were where he was really excellent at. So he made his, you know, a lot of his living off of leg attacks in the beginning phases. And now you don't really see him even go to the legs that much. I mean, he'll threaten the legs, but you you more so see him guard passing and using his uh, his guard to sweep, you know, and mounting and, and front headlocks and, and much more many different other tools besides leg locking now. Now, honestly, I think the reason he's doing that is because he's smart. He's setting up competition footage. So down the road, when he goes to do a front headlock instructional or he goes to do a mount instructional, he has competition footage to actually vouch for it. So he's really smart the way he does that because, um, you know, he's just going to, he's going to make so much money. He's basically just going to make an instructional for every position. Oh, we know how much money he's going to make. He's very vocal about that on Instagram. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Uh, he's he's definitely like in the 1% for jujitsu uh, and probably 1% for, for a lot of people in the world too. But, um, you know, just like he, he is so good from every position. He's so intelligent as a grappler that it doesn't matter what position is in. I could I could fully see him making instructionals for all these positions. And like I said, you know, he's he's going to have the competition footage to back it up now. So it's like, yeah, you can't really you can't really argue with that. And another thing I like about his instructionals is at the end, he I still haven't gotten to the seated guard one, but I've the passing guard instructional. He's got footage at the end of the instructional where he's actually rolling. And then he plays the footage again in another volume where he's narrating the roles and saying exactly what he's doing. So, like, it's really good value. Uh, and it, it's really nice to have an instructional where there's live footage mixed in with the instruction. So that's really good. Yeah, that's an awesome idea. Sounds like more of a lively thing, too. And hey, if there's one thing I've learned in the last few weeks is that narrated footage is something you should definitely pay for. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But no, I, I like what you're bringing up with Gordon Ryan here and how, you know, he, by his own admission, was kind of dumb when it came to jujitsu. Because something that I've noticed is that a lot of these people who have made these incredible, innovative breakthroughs in jujitsu are people who inherently by their own admission are not good at it, right? They they just didn't come to them naturally, but rather than getting hung up on that, they kind of embraced the dumbness and learned to create these systems that make it easier for them to learn. Because I, I mean, I know, Matt, like we have all had this frustration where there are people who show up and they're just natural prodigies. Like they just take to it like a fish takes to water. They don't even necessarily know why they're good at it. They don't know why what they're doing is working, but it just does because they just have all of the gifts. But then there's people who aren't naturally good at it and aren't natural athletes necessarily, but they're able to make it work through systems. And that's kind of their their competitive edge. Like, I mean, you know, Bernanke, Danaher, um, like these are guys who are not known for being like incredible athletic competitors. They're people who built these frameworks. And I think from a lot of people, like even Gordon, who is like an absolute ace level athlete, probably a lot of those guys too, they benefited a lot from these conceptual frameworks. And I think that once you take someone who is like a naturally gifted athlete and then you empower them with these frameworks, like, holy fuck, look out (laughs) because those are people who are going to really, really succeed to the next level. Yeah, man. I mean, Gordon Ryan, if you look at pictures of him when he's 15, he's shredded, right? So he's got the physical, physical gifts, but then, um, you know, you put him against a guy like Danaher and then you give him the work. Well, you don't give him, he creates a work ethic where he's working literally like 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And it's it's really the sky's the limit. And we've we've watched his meteoric rise over the last, you know, half a decade. And I mean, truthfully, he deserves all the success he has. He answers almost all questions. If you message him, he'll straight up just answer your question. Just random fans. And if you troll him, he's definitely going to answer you, too. So, uh, you know, all, all the credit to Gordon Ryan. He's the man. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can easily shit on him for being basically a giant troll, and that's a fair criticism, but you can't deny his contribution to the art, especially at the young age that he is. Like, his body of work has just been absolutely incredible. And what's interesting is for a lot of people, 
you know, they succeed in one area, but maybe not another. Like maybe they're a great competitor, but they just suck at running a gym. They suck at teaching their instructionals or garbage or maybe the opposite. You know, they're a great teacher, but they never really achieved personal success at the competitive scene. So it's kind of crazy that this one guy has achieved so much, especially at such a young age. And I, I wonder and kind of I hope that maybe the best is even yet to come from him. Like if he can continue to contribute to the knowledge base of jujitsu at the rate he has been doing, if he can continue that up and not like flame out for the next 10, 20 years, man, that's going to be great for all of us. Especially BJJ mental models, because apparently, like, we're just basically stealing his content and republishing. Well, we're just plagiarizing (laughs) the shit out of it, right? But yeah, no. And even if you ask him, he's like, "I'd beat the shit out of me two years ago." And and when I'm when I'm thirty, I'm gonna be at such a level that I'd kick the shit out of me today easily. It wouldn't even be competitive, right? This guy's already said he's gonna walk into ADCC next year. If fuck, if there is an ADCC, uh, he's gonna walk in and just destroy everyone. Then he's gonna beat Andre in the super fight too, and it's not gonna be competitive. And he's not gonna get any points scored against him. I'm like, how the fuck do you know that? <laughs> how the hell do you have that confidence? Then you go out there and you do it. Yeah, it's a preposterous claim, but yet I believe him. <laughs> it's it's literally like he's got some kind of unseen superpower and he's able to just do what he wants out there. Man, it's impressive. I honestly think that confidence is a powerful engine for success. Like so much of being successful is just convincing yourself and refusing to accept anything else. I mean, I don't believe in all of that like law of attraction bullshit, but at the end of the day, you can't deny the importance that building confidence has for yourself to the point where actually I think that we should talk about that at some point, not just even in a a single episode, but like a whole series. I mean, there's kind of been an underlying vein of that in BJJ Mental Models, which is talking about and trying to basically pump up our audience to give them the confidence to do stuff that they've never had the confidence to do. But I'd love to dig into that deeper because I think that building a a self-sustaining well of confidence inside yourself is one of the most powerful drivers for success in your life. Anyway, awesome chat, Matt. Any closing thoughts before we put a bow on this thing? No. Awesome. You know, I feel like we really turned the ship around on this one. I feel like after shitting the bed for the first half hour, we really made this one into a success story. So just to put some closing thoughts onto this, there's generally two different families of guards. You have supine guards like traditional closed guard where you're kind of lying down flat on your back and then you've got seated guards which is more where you're in an upright posture usually you're sitting on your butt that's what we talked about here today the evolution of seated guards has been super critical because as people have realized you are not obligated to just enter someone's closed guard you can actually stand up and avoid it Seated guards have established a position of prominence and importance because that's one of the best ways that you can really attack and be aggressive from the bottom. Now, when you're playing a seated guard, your opponent, the standing guy, can kind of be in four different positions. They can either be in a squared stance where their legs are and their foot placement is parallel to each other. They can be in a staggered stance, which is more the traditional boxer kickboxer stance where you've got one leg forward, one back. They can be down on one knee or they can be down on both knees. And these are effectively the predictable responses to seated guard and using the right tool for the job is super critical when it comes to having success off of the bottom. Now, in terms of the mental models we talked about today, we talked about inside channel control. 
a big part of playing seated guard from the bottom is trying to take the inside channel because that's often how you harass legs, get into leg entanglements, set up leg locks, set up sweeps. Usually it's about exploiting the legs. We talked about predictable responses. Again, those four different configurations that I talked about earlier. Those are the main four predictable responses when it comes to playing seated guard. We talked about dictating the pace. The benefit to seated guard is it is a great way to keep on the offense and keep dictating the pace even when you're the guy on the bottom. We talked about grips dictating position. So one of the challenges to seated guard is getting in close enough to play it effectively without getting killed on the way in, which I've called in the past the killing field. Uh, Getting good grips and using those as an entry into the seated guard is absolutely critical to getting there safely. We talked about Kazushi. Another great way to get in safely is using those grips to create Kazushi. So a common strategy for seated guard is, for example, grabbing the arm, setting up an arm drag, or doing something to try to pull your opponent over top of you. A lot of the time, rather than scooching in towards your opponent, it's easier to pull them on top of you. So that's a good alternative there. We talked about mirrored stances. The first time we've talked about this mental model in this podcast, basically the concept that you want to mirror your opponent's stance such that you reduce the options for them to attack you and you maximize your options for you to attack them. So examples being if your opponent is in a squared stance, it's safe for you to adopt a squared stance as well. But if your opponent goes to a staggered stance, then you need to mirror that because otherwise they can attack you in four directions and you can only defend in two. And finally, we talked about minimizing attack vectors, which is really what mirrored stances is all about. This is the idea that in any strategy, you want to minimize the number of places where your opponent can attack you. First of all, because that simplifies the predictable responses. They only have a few things they can do if there's only a few places they can attack you. And also it allows you to shore up your defenses in those places because there's less ambiguity about where the attack could come from. So think of, for example, the military strategy of trying to funnel an opponent through a narrow pass. A lot easier because you know where that attack is going to come from and you can then put all of your defenses in the right place. So really awesome chat. I had a great time here. I learned a ton myself personally. Let's put a bow on this thing. So, you know, we've plugged this substantially all the way through the podcast, but if this has been a valuable resource to you, you can get a lot more by going to patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. That's the best place you can go to support the show and help us keep the lights on. But it's also the best place you can go to take your game to the next level. If you found this stuff helpful, again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. If you get on there, we've got a lot of premium courseware content that we'll provide to you. That's the only place you you can get it. And additionally, that's where you can get on our Discord community. You could send us your footage. We'll gladly narrate and critique it and send it back to you. The people we've been doing that for so far have found that to be super valuable. So please, if you haven't already done so, do consider supporting us there. We really appreciate it. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the mothership. It's our website where we've got a full database of these mental models, probably the biggest database of its kind in the world, and it's available fully for free. You can also find a contact form on there where you can send us your questions, your comments, your feedback. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store where you can pick up our gi patches, our t-shirts, and our hoodies. And of course, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join where you can get on our mailing list. We send out what I like to think are pretty great articles once a week. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Now, Matt, before we tie this up, I have 
a feedback from a listener. It's actually not a question, but they clarified something that we talked about on a prior episode. And I'm wondering if you'd be interested in having a little bit of a learning lesson to close the show today. Oh God, always. <laughs> okay. So you're going to like this one. I just listened to your episode on Butterfly Guard and I wanted to point out a few things. Cat piss smells so bad because they have more efficient kidneys, which causes a higher concentration of urea in their urine. Bacteria usually breaks down urea to ammonia, so a little bit of piss will smell extra. (laughs) Cats carry a higher level of the bacteria than humans, which causes the breakdown quicker than human piss. There is a pheromone, more in males, in their urine that doesn't smell, but when it breaks down, it has a sulfur smell and sour smell to it too. The more you know. (laughs) (laughs) great listener feedback Uh, I feel like I've learned something that I'm not sure I wanted to learn but I I guess I'm better for it This guy's into cheesing, for yeah. those of you who know, who know what South Park the episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, man, cat piss is fucking pungent. Anyway, I probably need to actually go clean the litter box. So thanks again for your attention, everyone, today. This was a good one. Hope you found it useful. Talk to you next time. Thanks a lot for the support, guys. All right, great chat. See you guys. 